Well, good morning. What was that? That was terrible. We've been doing this a while now. Good morning. Appreciate it. Thanks. I like your red shoes. Those are cool. I like your blue shoes. Thank you. <laughs> We're not talking about compliments today, but that was, that was good, and I like that. Uh, so my name is Justin Craig. I'm our family minister here at Windsor Road, and uh, we are right in the middle of our series called Building Strong Families. Um, Two weeks ago, Pastor Randy started us off and took us uh, through the word embrace and how we're supposed to be embracing the role of steward in our child's life, not the role of owner, because we do not own our children, but we are stewards of the gifts that God has given to us. Last week, we walked through the word engage. We talked about how we need to engage in our child's life so that we don't miss it, and this week, our word is affirm. Now, I uh, had an opportunity about six years ago to go snowboarding with some kids from our old church. I was a two-sport athlete in high school, so I felt like snowboarding should be something I could do. Well, I got all my gear on. I got like some pants that were supposed to be waterproof, but they weren't. I had my coat on, my regular winter coat. Uh, I had a hat that my wife had bought me when she was in high school from the Ukraine with a little white ball on the top of it. I had gloves that were no good except for scraping ice off the car, and here I am ready to go snowboarding with a bunch of teenagers. It's not starting out well. We get there, and, and I get all the gear. They give me the board. They're like, hey, just so you know, we're sorry, but it's the only, only other board we have, and it's broken. I'm like, it's not going to matter. I'm just telling you right now, it's not going to matter if I got a broken board or if I got a piece of cardboard. It's really not going to matter what happens here. So we get up to the hill, we get, all, we get all geared up, we got the boots on that look like I'm walking on the moon, we've got the snowboard that's broken apparently, and I'm probably just going to break it more, and we get to like the little kid training hill, where they're doing like the little kid runs, where like three and four year olds are out there, and they're going down the hill that's about this grade, it's just kind of, you know, just a slow decline down, and I'm like, I can do this, you know, I see like 85 year old grandma doing this too, I'm like, man, I can do this, I can snowboard, no problem, and sure enough, I can do that hill, no problem, all right, I get done with that, and I'm like, well, let's go to the real hill, let's go to the slopes, right, like, this is gonna be great, and they're like, really, you think you're ready for that, and I'm like, well, I thought I was, I, um, yeah, let's go, so, so we walk over to the, uh, I don't know if it's like a blue square or a black, di- it wasn't a black diamond, because that's like, Olympic stuff, but it was, it was something a little bit more drastic than the tiny little bunny approach hill thing that I had, all right, and so we get there, and I'm like, wow, uh, so, so what do you do, and they're like, oh, just go ahead and lean forward, I'm like, you lean forward, that's a big hill, I mean, there's woods down there, I, they're like, what's the worst that could happen, I'm like, I could die, that could be the worst thing that would happen, and then I'd probably break your board even more. And so we, we get there, and, and they're, like, they're like, just lean out a little bit. So I lean out a little bit and get going a little too fast, and I decide that I'm scared, so I just sit down. Okay, I just sit down in the snow. I kind of tumble a little bit. The board still attached to my feet is making me roll even more. It's kind of embarrassing, okay? The more embarrassing part is, is that I can't stand back up. I'm like trying to inch my way to stand back up, and for whatever reason, I can't do it. I'm sitting there going, man, I'm such a loser. This is not good. I shouldn't be out here. I know that the snack bar has hot chocolate. What am I doing here? This is terrible. And so one of the kids comes over. Zach, nice kid, comes over. He's like, hello, let me help you up. I'm like, oh, thanks. 
And so I get going again, and I'm like, I'm going too fast, and there's woods. And so I sit down again, and now I have to get back up again. It's just this big ordeal till I get down to the bottom of the hill. I get down there. Everybody else has gone about 19 times. And so I, uh, I'm down at the bottom. I'm kind of by myself, and I realize I don't know how to do the lift. See, my family, we weren't, we weren't like outdoor winter people. Uh, I went cross-country skiing once, got a mile out, and decided I hated it, took off my skis and walked back. Uh, we, it was not, it wasn't going well. And so I get, I'm, I'm at the lift and I'm like, oh, this is, uh, I'm not sure what to do. I see other people do that. And I'm like, oh, well, that looks easy enough. And then one of the kids that I'm with comes down. He's like, oh, we didn't explain the lift to you. I'm like, right. Kind of important when it's traveling up over the tops of trees. So we're, I'm like, so you just got to explain it to me. What happens? He's like, oh, you just go over there. They'll, they'll hold on to it. You sit down and it takes you up. I'm like, perfect. No problem. I can do that. So I make my way over with my board kind of like Gumby would or whatever, you know, just kind of making my way over. And I get down, I sit down in the chair, and I'm, I'm going up. I'm like, this is beautiful. This is so nice. I don't know how to get off. Uh, so I'm like screaming to the kid in front of me. I'm like, Nathaniel, I need your help. I, I don't know how to get off. And he's like, oh, right. And I'm like, right. We're way up in the air. How do I get off of the lift? And he's like, oh, watch. You just slide your board out as you get to the top, and you'll just slide right out. I'm like, no problem. I think I could do that, right? Like, that sounds easy enough. So I watch him because he's a few seats in front of me. I watch him, and I'm studying him carefully at how he just lays his board out, and he just glides right out. I'm like, man, I can do that. And so I'm getting up. I'm getting up the top, and I, I get to the point where you're supposed to put your board out, but I put my board out too early, and there's a lip in the, in the mountain, and my board catches the lip, and I kaboom down out of the lift. My face is covered with ice, you know, the fake snow that they make at the, at the ski slopes and everything. I've got ice-covered chunks on my face that are making themselves a part of my body now. I've got a gash in my face that's got blood dripping down, and I look up at Nathaniel. I'm like, what do I do? He is crying. He's laughing so hard and I'm like what do I do and he's like you got to get out of the way there's a guy coming behind you and so now I got the board strapped to my feet I'm laying on my belly on the ground and I am army crawling it he's like stand up I'm like I can't you don't understand it was at that moment that I'm like I don't think God made me to snowboard uh I, you know, I, I, I think God made me to do something really cool, and I don't think snowboarding is it. I'm not going to be in the X Games. I'm not going to be an Olympian, and I'm certainly not ever going to snowboard again unless there's a sled under me and there's no board at all. It was just terrible, right? I mean, one of those things where it's just like, I don't think I'm supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to be here, right? It made me start asking the question of, well, well, who am I then, right? I mean, if I'm not a snowboarder, it made me start asking the question, well, what am I good at, right? Like, what am I good at? Because at that point, you're in such despair, you have no idea what you're good at. All you think about is what you're terrible at. So it makes me start asking the question of, well, who am I, right? And, and it's a question that our kids and our teenagers ask themselves all the time. They ask the question of, of who am I? They struggle through this question. And this is not just a question about them, but it's becoming a question that will define their mentality, their emotions, their spirituality, their relationships, and ultimately it will define how they see themselves with this one simple question, who am I? So today as we start talking about this word affirm, we start talking about affirm, we're going to be affirming our kids' identity in Christ because culture will do anything to change it. We want to affirm our kids' identity in Christ because our culture will do anything to change that. 
And I believe the Bible lays out a couple of very specific ways that we as parents and we as a church family can affirm our kids' identity in Christ. The first one is that we can build character. Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. See, a lot of the time we have no problem admitting that our kids are sinners, right? They make mistakes. They've got faults. They don't see what they don't see. They don't anticipate what they don't anticipate. And they don't know what they don't know. Our kids are a work in progress just like we are. And they need the same grace that we are given from the Father. And sometimes it's hard to see them in the middle of their sin, in the middle of their mistake, in the middle of their guilt, that they are still God's workmanship. So as we talk about, briefly here, as we talk about building character, we must regularly remind our kids that Jesus is still in love with them. We must regularly remind our kids that Jesus is still in love with them. I remember going trick-or-treating as a kid. Please don't show the picture yet. Hold on to the picture. Oh, man! All right, so here's cute Justin. He waved bye-bye to the world a long time ago. Um, Now, there was a trick-or-treating event that happened in our neighborhood called Halloween. We celebrate that here, too, so that's nice. But my dad decided one year that he was going to make my costume. Now, this was not a Halloween where we were exceptionally poor. We had those, but this was not one of them. But they just had a lot of materials left over at my dad's work, so he brought home a cardboard barrel that he put around me, um, which I think today would have to be cut off with the jaws of life. But we had this cardboard barrel that was over my chest, and, and it goes down pretty far. Uh, then I've got dryer hoses, as you can see, attached to my arms. And for some reason, robots had it attached to their heads, too. Uh, now, my helmet is not the helmet of salvation. Don't be confused by that. This is the helmet of styrofoam. Uh, so if you're traveling somewhere and you plan on anticipating hitting your head, don't wear styrofoam. Also, I've got something on my legs. I don't think those were dryer hose things, but I don't know what those are. So uh, it was just my coolness seeping out, evidently. So my dad decides to make this, this robot, and I'm like, Dad, I'm not really digging this thing. He's like, I got you something. And you can't really see it, but on the front of it, there is a black rectangle on the front of my costume. It was a little light-up sign that read, Hi, every time I push the button. That did not add to the coolness of the costume. However, because parents, we are smarter than our kids. Let's just say that now. Okay, just because it's fun to say. Uh, Because my dad was smarter than I was at that point, and still is. He's like, I think the other kids are going to think you're really cool because nobody else is going to have that costume. I'm like, you are right about that. Because other people, they buy costumes, Father. This is no good. Uh, So we are walking around the neighborhood, and kids love it. They love my costume because they think I'm an alien from some other place. And they're like, oh, there's that robot. That robot, oh, he's so cool. And I'm just walking around going, hi. (laughs) Hi. And it's hard to walk in. So, like, the width of the barrel is only about this big. So I'm, like, walking like this the whole time. I've got no idea what's going on. Just, hi. Just walking around. Now, Because we didn't value safety uh, back then, my dad didn't bring a flashlight with us as we were walking around. And I met a very big enemy of mine as we were walking around. I got a bag full of candy. We're almost rounding the block to head home. And, well, we'll just call this enemy the curb. Um, 
because you don't see what you don't see. And dad walks up the curb, no problem, leaves me in the street to die by myself. And I am walking up the curb. I miss the curb, kick it, and fall flat on my face. Uh, I, I now have a cracked helmet because it's made out of really classy styrofoam. And now I've got blood on my face, and my, my face is starting to swell, so I start talking with a lisp. And that was really fun because I bit my lip and it just kind of got more and more worse. But, and all my candy went flying, right? Like you kick the curb, ah! and for a moment you can see it in the headlights of the cars and then it just disappears forever and you're like, oh, I worked so hard for that. And so dad picks me up and he's like, he asks me in his very compassionate voice, well, what did you do that for? And I'm like, what? I want to go home. I just, where's mom or the neighbor's dog? They have more compassion than you do. What's going on? And so, so dad picks me up. He's starting to brush me off. Now, dad is, is very happy about his creation, so there's no way we're going home early. So he will tell me anything to keep me out there. He's like, you look fine. I'm like, I really look fine? Like, I can't feel my side of my face, but I look fine? He's like, you look, you look great. I'm like, I got blood streaming down my hands. I'm like, is this okay? Like, do robots bleed? I don't think they do. And so, so he convinces me, let's go to a few more houses. You would not believe the sympathy candy you get. I show up at this person's door, and they're like, oh, a robot. And I'm like, yeah, I fell down a couple blocks away. And they're like, you fell down? Yeah, I don't even have a bag anymore. They're just like, well, here's a bunch of candy. And I'm like, this is the best Halloween ever. So I get home and I finally see how really awful I look. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous, right? Like, I would have, if I had seen myself, like I would have never, I would have never continued. But because my dad was standing there and he goes, no, you look great. You look fine. There's nothing wrong with you at all. I kept going. I didn't quit early. I didn't walk away. I kept going because my dad spoke life and encouragement into me. You see, kids need someone in their lives telling them that they still look good. See, mistakes are inevitable, but reactions are controllable. Mistakes are inevitable. Reactions are controllable. Our kids will make mistakes. It's how we respond to those mistakes that builds character in them. We must be regularly reminding them that Jesus is still in love with them. Jamar Tisby is a writer for the Reformed African American Network. He said this, The image of God can be damaged but never dispelled. Kids need to know that the love of God doesn't stop because they stop loving God's plan and they go off course. Because of Jesus, we are no longer rejected but restored. We're no longer failures, but we're forgiven. We're no longer lost causes, but found children. We're no longer servants of a dead world, but sons and daughters of a living God. When we see how much Jesus loves us, our pain is overwhelmed by his presence. Our lies are overcome by his truth. Our loneliness is overpowered by his peace. And our inabilities are overshadowed by his power. We are only made complete in Jesus, by Jesus, and because of Jesus. You may not be a spiritual genius or a theological giant, but you can hug a kid and tell them that they matter to God. Our kids need to be regularly reminded that Jesus is still in love with them. Because his finished work on the cross is for our unfinished list of sins. So as we build character, as we regularly remind our kids who they are, we also need to partner in the process of continual transformation. Paul Tripp writes in his book, Parenting, he says, The Father's work of justification is an event through Jesus, but his work of transformation is literally a lifelong process. Every kid needs parents and adults who will model the process of transformation. 
Every kid needs parents and adults who will be real and authentic through that process of transformation. As we help our kids answer the question of who am I, we must be continually helping them see that we are still God's workmanship. You see, kids will admire our strengths, but they will resonate with our weaknesses. Our kids need to see the work of Jesus happening in our lives before they see the need of Jesus in theirs. The more we act like we have it all together is the time when our kids start approaching us and saying, well, what do I need Jesus for? You've got it all worked out. When we become real, Jesus will become real to them. The sooner we stop putting ourselves on pedestals and we start putting Jesus there is the sooner our kids will stop worshiping the false gods we make ourselves and start recognizing their need for Jesus. What our kids need from us is to see our daily need for Christ. His redemption, His restoration, His forgiveness, His grace, His acceptance, and His love. Because we have weaknesses and we have sins and we all fall short. 1 Timothy 1.16 says this, But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example to those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that because I am the worst of sinners, Jesus can use me as a case study. Every kid needs parents and adults who will model the process of transformation through the blood of Jesus daily. So as we affirm the identity of our child, as we are building character in them, regularly reminding them who they are, and walking through the transformation process with them, we also need to nurture the heart. And I believe that there's a step before we get to the nurturing of the heart of our child, and that is that we must first navigate our own heart. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There's a very important word in this verse, and it's not the word heart, but it's the word all. The word all of our heart. Not a portion of our heart, but all of our heart. Seeking Jesus with all of our heart means that we are not seeking anything else. And as parents, I think too quickly we seek our own kingdoms. It almost becomes a default setting for us. To seek ourselves first comes natural to us, and we will fight to keep ourselves first. I love, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of the times where I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty selfless. Like, oh, yeah, I'm selfless, you know, serve at a church, you know. I, I, I serve at home when I'm at home. But there's, there's, there's lots of iffy things about that, right? Like, we can all have that, that spirit of, man, I serve. I serve all the time. I'm selfless. I, I give to others before I give to myself. And I loved what John Maxwell, John Maxwell is a um, preacher and and, and he like burps out a new leadership book that's a bestseller every like eight months, and it's amazing. He was at the Global Leadership Summit this last summer at Willow Creek. Staff got a chance to go to the, to, to the site here in town and listen to him speak, and he was talking about, he, he was speaking with an executive at a company. He was talking about, uh, the, he was telling the executive how you add value to others is that you seek their needs first. And he's like, oh, I do that perfectly. He's like, I must be a great leader. John's like, I'm not lying. This guy really is saying this to me. And he's, he's like, I, I really think I'm, I'm being very selfless here. And, and so John says to him, he's like, he's like, so let me ask you this. When you take a picture and you're in that picture, who do you look at first? And he goes, oh, 
He's like, and don't you judge the quality of the picture by the way you look in the picture? And he's like, oh. He's like, because your actions may be selfless, but your heart isn't. And I think too quickly we, we fight to keep ourselves first in our kids' lives. We fight for the wrong things, right? There's this phrase that we pick our battles wisely. And I think too often we don't do that very well because unfortunately most of us as parents are better skilled at fighting to win the argument than we are at fighting to win the heart. We do this because self-preservation is a default setting for us. Last week, we defined parenting as generously showing Jesus' love and grace to our children. But we quickly become more generous with displaying our power over our children than we are at displaying Jesus' grace. So I've had this question sitting in my heart for about the last five weeks. And it's something that I've been fighting with and wrestling with and trying to, trying to work through and trying to piece through. And I think, it's just, I think it's just sitting in my mind constantly to help me kind of rewire some things in myself. But it's the question of, what if God parented us the same way we parent our children? For me, that hurts a little bit. What if God parented us the same way that we parent our children? What if God was impatient? He was distracted. He was hurried. He was late. He was never there. He's inconsistent. He cheated at a board game. You know you do that. Did somebody say amen? I don't know what that was. That was great. What if God was unjust? He was selfish. He left me to fend for myself. He lied. He didn't make time or have time. God was preoccupied or he punished us based on the anger level that he was at, not on our action. What if God parented us the same way we parent our children? It'd be a life filled with hopelessness, loneliness. There'd be no point in going on. What if we flip that question? We say, what if, what if we parented our children the same way that God parents us? What if we were patient, focused, calm, present, consistent, dependable, fair in our decisions, selfless, always there, trustworthy, occupied the moments we listened and we gave up everything for them. You see, when we're in the middle of occupying a moment, whatever that moment may be, right, a tough moment, a scary moment, a moment of a tantrum in the middle of Walmart or Target, a moment of arguments, when we come to those moments in our lives, generally our first plea is out to God for our kids, God, please heal my child. They have a demon inside of them right now or they have made some awful decisions and I don't know how to get through this. Generally, that's our first response, right? Because we want to pray for our kid and that is, that is, that's good. We need to be praying for our kids but in our first plea to God when it comes to leading, guiding, and parenting in our home should not be about our kids but should be about our heart. We'll have an impossible time taking our children to the feet of Jesus if we haven't been there in a long time. We cannot expect our kids to give up their hearts to Jesus if we aren't willing to do the same and model it. We must be pursuing Jesus with all of our heart because how can we expect our kids to fall in love with a Jesus we don't ever talk about? We must be allowing God to nurture our hearts as we seek to nurture the hearts of our kids to look more like Jesus. As we're we're nurturing the hearts, we need to navigate our hearts and we need to nurture theirs. I think a lot of the time we have a mix-up in our kingdoms together. Paul Tripp again writes in his book, Parenting, God didn't give us our children to build our reputation, but to publicly proclaim his. 
The best life for our child is found in Jesus, not us. Our children must be regularly reminded that they were created for a kingdom bigger than now. And I think, I think us as parents and, and the church, we need to pay attention to a few things if we're nurturing the hearts of our kids. If we are nurturing their hearts, then we need to know what is attacking their hearts and what is vying for their attention. We need to become students of our kids. Reggie Joyner says, we will never know our kids the way that we need to know them if we don't take time to discover their world over and over again. We must become students of our kids. Read their books, go to their movies, watch their TV shows, follow their favorite musicians and athletes, listen to their music, show up where they show up. We cannot discover all that we need to know by reading a childhood development or adolescent book because by the time the book is printed, our culture has changed. Today's culture is so different. It moves so much faster than when we were in school, when we were in their age group. Today's generation, these stats are from a book called It's Just a Phase, so don't miss it. Today's generation is growing up in a world where alcohol abuse begins as early as 10 years old. The average age to view pornography is 11. 12-year-olds are prone to self-harm. And suicide is the third leading cause of death in adolescence. Counselors are reporting rapid growth in the epidemic of depression in our teens. Without getting into the why things are changing, it's important for us to know that things are changing. Kids are dealing with problems that we know very little about, which means that us as parents and as the church are dealing with different dangers that have never been handled before. That's one reason why now, more than ever, adults who care about the future of the next generation should find ways to help a kid make friends, cooperate with others, stand up to bullies, problem solve, laugh, show initiative, develop integrity, be resourceful, show respect, communicate effectively, take care of their body and wait for what they want. We do this effectively by nurturing their hearts and by parenting them the same way that God parents us. We must know what is attacking the hearts of our kids if we plan on guarding their hearts and teaching them to do the same. Now, there's a huge difference between, between this term helicopter parent, which is really the, the camp that I sit in. The helicopter parent just kind of hovers over the child and says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Really good at that with our, with our two younger kids because my, my middle daughter, she gets running so fast that she can't stop and she ends up just supermaning it out on the pavement or here at church or wherever we are. She just gets going so fast and so when she starts running, I'm always like, slow down, slow down, slow down. Just there to hover over her and make sure that, you know, she's okay. There's a big difference between helicopter parents and involved parents. Helicopter parents will control everything and become overbearing. Involved parents will walk alongside of and become trusted. Helicopter parents do not guard the heart, they guard the activities. Involved parents teach their children to guard their own heart. We need to be comfortable, this is what it all comes down to, we need to be comfortable with our kids needing Jesus more than they need us. We need to become, com we need to become comfortable with that. Because our kids do need Jesus more than they need us. So we need to know what's vying for their attention. And we also need to teach our children discernment. Because eventually the suitcases will be full and the bedrooms will be empty. And while we still have influence, it's a different kind of influence. So if we're not teaching our children to fight for their own heart, 
We're not doing them any favors. Kids will eventually stop asking the question why. Now, for us as a preschool family that we have right now, the question why comes up all the time. It's actually the time, the, the second most time in our child's life that they are learning the most. Between the ages of two and three and three and four are the times that they learn the most. The next, the next time that they learn the most is not until they get to middle school. So child development is really happening here when they start asking the question why. It's not that they're trying to be difficult. It's because they want to know why. And those whys will eventually stop, but they won't ever stop thinking why. As kids get older, they, they, they will have more opportunities to seek the why themselves. So we need to teach our children how to fight for their hearts. And how do we do that? How, how do we do that? What is the practicality of all of this this morning? It's found in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If we are doing that as a family, then we are nurturing the hearts of our children, building their character. If as a family we are submitting ourselves to God, as a family we are resisting the devil, as a family we are coming near to God, as a family we are washing our hands as sinners together, as a family we are purifying our hearts together through Christ, then we start nurturing the hearts and teaching our kids to do the same. So as we build character in our child, God is building character in us. As we are regularly reminded, as we are regularly reminding our kids that they are still loved by God, God is regularly reminding us that we are still loved by him. As we help our kids through the process of transformation, God is transforming us. As we guard the heart of our child, God is helping to guard our own heart. As we are nurturing our child's heart, God is nurturing, developing, and cultivating ours. As we affirm the identity of Christ in our sin-stricken, character-questioned, heartbroken child, Jesus is doing the same for us. You see, we don't walk through parenting alone. We don't drive alone. We don't yell alone. We don't discipline alone. We don't disciple alone. We don't love alone, and we don't pray alone. Because every parenting woe, every parenting failure, every parenting moment, every pack of fruit snacks we open, every peanut butter and jelly we make, every board game we play, and every practice we drive them to, God is working in our lives. Every nose we wipe, every spill we clean up, every conversation we dread, and every time we blow it and we're positive we've ruined our child forever, God's love and grace covers us even more. I'm going to end with our scripture here this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12. The screen will say 1 Corinthians because I messed up. I've got weakness, and so that's kind of what it's talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, because Jesus is Savior to all, we don't have to be a Savior to our kids. Our weaknesses do not hinder us. They empower us through Jesus. My prayer for us as parents and as a church family, as we empower the next generation, is that Christ's power may rest on us. Let's pray.